Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Alice Gorman, who is my cousin. She is also known as Dr. Space Junk on Twitter. She's a fantastic and interesting person, not least of which is her career choice, which is archaeology in space. If you want to know what that is, you need to listen to the episode, as well as finding out what she struggles with and has struggled with over the course of her career from the time when she was a, a heritage coordinator on mining sites um, negotiating between Indigenous communities and mining interests and what that uh, middleman position is like, uh, as well as all sorts of other things. So it's a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. Uh, now there will be about two minutes of plugs, probably a minute and a half. Let's be realistic. I'm not great at plugs. First of all, uh, Edinburgh. I'll be in Edinburgh at 8.45 at the Gilded Balloon with my show Mythos. It's in the billiard room, which is downstairs, but you don't need to know that. You just need to know to go to the Gilded Balloon. And if you're going to Edinburgh, come see my show. It'd be lovely to see you there. Uh, I also have a preview on the 15th of this month, 15th of July, at Good Ship Comedy. So if you Google Alice Fraser, Mythos, Good Ship Comedy, you can get £5 tickets to uh, probably one of my last previews there. Also, uh, Ethos, which is last year's show, and The Resistance, which is the show that was in the middle of the trilogy, those are available in full, filmed, via my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. I'm trying to centralise my stuff there. Uh, There's also my website, alicefraser.com, but I'm trying to put things on the Patreon page there. That's the bio, you don't have to pay to see it, but it's just a kind of a one-stop shop for all of the stuff that I have that's available now. Uh, my BBC Radio 4 radio show, which I have been so excited and not allowed to talk about. Um, it's about science and science fiction. It's coming out starting on Wednesday, and I assume it'll be on BBC iPlayer or whatever whatever sort of ways they do that. Um, and that's with Jen Gupta, who's an astrophysicist, and we talk about the um, interlocking mechanics of science and science fiction. So that starts on Wednesday, next Wednesday which is, I don't know, some date. Oi. Other than that, I think that's all the things that I have to plug at the moment. I'm probably missing something, but you want to get on with listening to the show, and I will talk to you next week. Thank you so much for listening. I will, I'll talk to you next week. Uh, you're having tea with Alice. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Uh, who are you and what are you drinking? I'm Alice. <laughs> <laughs> you are. And I'm um, currently drinking uh, green tea with lime and ginger. It's a very nice green tea. And you've got these Waitrose cupcakes, which is above and beyond. Well, the cupcakes, since we are both Alice's, and I don't know, but I feel that you probably have a certain relationship with Alice in Wonderland, as I do. Yes. And these cakes, there is one with a red heart on it. Yes. There is one with a teapot on it. Yes. And ones with cakes, a cake with a cake on it. Yes, that's the and one I chose, the cupcake with the cupcake on it, because it felt like meta-commentary. <laughs> and the cupcake with a teacup on it, so they seem like exactly the right cakes for this moment. So, uh, to contextualise, Alice is Alice, my cousin Alice, and I think we're, the, we're named after the same ancestral Alice, quite possibly. Are we? Yes, possibly. 
the Alice as the family name coming down the generations. But either way, coincidence or, or familial, <laughs> uh, it's it's nice to share a name. And uh, what are you drink? You're drinking this green tea. Did it come with the flat or? No. When I realised I was about to meet you, <laughs> I went on a tea-seeking mission. And I remembered you said you like green tea. And I found these green teas with green tea with lemon and ginger. And I thought that sounds quite refreshing for a hot day as it's, it's quite hot here in London today. It is boiling hot uh, in London. You're only in London for a week or so, right? Until Saturday, yeah. So a bit of a flying visit. And my big saga of this visit has, has been my luggage arriving the day after me yeah. <laughs> and not being delivered until today. So I have had a interesting time trying to make do and or purchase things that I have needed to get by while I have gone about meeting people and giving talks and various things, all feeling kind of slightly like like I left the house without looking in a mirror and having forgotten to have a shower. So I felt like that for the whole time. It's, it's hard to feel authoritative when you're wearing brand new undies, I think. Yes. I wouldn't say I have a lucky pair of underwear, but there's the ones that you're comfortable in and you know you can rely on and will see you right. Just one less thing to worry about in your head. So I do agree. So clearly when you're performing, you like a pair of, of initiated underwear too. Yeah, I like I like comfortable cotton undies that I know are not going to surprise me in any way. <laughs> I don't, I, in fact, I tend to wear the same outfit more or less mm-hmm. uh, for seasons at a time so if do I know I've just realized I do the same thing I have a, a couple of sort of basic black pieces and one is one an off-the-shoulder thing that I wear a tunic over and I've got one that's quite similar and I do the, I wear them over and over and over so if you were to look at the pictures you'd think it all happened at the same time instead of it happening over a period of a few years. And it's... Well, I've heard of celebrities doing that in order to kind of cheat the paparazzi. Really? So that they're they're not getting anything new, they're not getting any kind of scoop, and there's nothing to say to the public that they managed Mm. to get a picture of this person on a different day. They could just be reusing the same set of pictures. Oh, very interesting. So the pictures are playing around with time in a time and information in a really interesting way yeah for me it's a it's a comfort thing I don't hugely enjoy worrying about what I look like so I'll do it hard for one day I'll figure out what it is that I'm going to wear and then I'll wear that or a small variation on that for as long as the weather is appropriate (laughs) which can be three months or if I'm moving between countries and it's just winter 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 or summer 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 then you know up to nine months or a year. That's very economical of clothes as well. Well, yeah, I think it partly comes out of living out of a suitcase so much, uh, partly comes from that sort of slightly Buddhist sense that it's not not right in some way to be super interested in mm. how you look. Mm. Part of it is a kind of a rejection of the girliness, mm. all of these narratives that we should be obsessed about how we look while simultaneously knowing that I'm working in a system that judges you on how you look. Mm. So I have to give some 
So there is no nothing that you decide that is not a decision that creates a message. Like there is no neutral place to be in this. Is that everything, even deciding not to play into it, is a choice you have to make and a decision you have to think through. Yeah, I think the perfect epitome of that is that uh, shaving or waxing your underarms, not shaving or waxing your underarms, is seen as the choice <laughs> rather than yes. rather than. The doing the activity being seen as the choice. Yes. Not doing anything is seen as an active choice, like quite an aggressive active choice at that, yeah. which is fascinating to me. And it sort of... I, I, I met someone the other day who was saying, slightly jokingly, that they don't think you can be a feminist and wear makeup. Mm-hmm. And That's I, such an old chestnut, though, isn't I mean, it's it? that like... thing of saying, well, it's like saying you can't be a, a communist and pay rent. <laughs> you have to work in the system you're given, yeah. assuming that you exist in that system and you don't have some sort of independent wealth that allows you to mm, bucket. To opt out of it, yeah. Uh, so knowing that everything you do is a message, you want to have some control over that message without being neurotic about it. It's not You don't want to be reading the emojis on a text message mm. every day trying to figure out what the signals are. Um, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting thing. So you've had to wear new clothes to give talks. Yes, I had to wear a new dress yesterday, and it was too hot. Oh no! For it was too thick for the warmth. Ah. So, so yes, so yes, because I didn't have that precise knowledge of that dress. I'd literally brought it at the train station <laughs> before I caught the train to go up there. Um, um, it is not the dress I would have chosen had I had the opportunity to select from my own wardrobe. So, yes, so this I think this is an important point, that level of comfort and familiarity that frees your brain up. Yeah, it does. It really, it really frees up your brain. Um, and having to think about, having to think about, I sort of resent having to think about it. <laughs> I feel like if I was forced to buy a new wardrobe, I'd ask them to give me pain money as well as the money for the new wardrobe. <laughs> Yeah, this is a good concept. So perhaps each new item of clothing you buy should come with a loading, depending on its the time you need to break it into your routine. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like sometimes if you buy something and it doesn't work, you should be allowed to return it. Yeah. <laughs> After about three or six months if you haven't really worn it. I know that's not <laughs> how the system works, but... <laughs> um, so what are you giving talks on? Mm. Bearing in mind that my uh, person listening doesn't know who you are. Oh, well, so to give a little bit of background, um, I'm uh, an archaeologist. I used to be a professional cultural heritage manager, so I worked in Australia um, with Aboriginal communities in the context of development, urban development, infrastructure, mining, a lot of mining, huge amount of mining. Um, and at a certain point, I, um, well, I did a PhD at a certain point in my career, but I was effectively working outside the academic world. And the reason I'm here goes back to um, a revelation I had about, ooh, I don't know, it was about 2001 or two, a revelation I had that I wanted to apply my cultural heritage management skills not to earthly things, but to things in outer space. So 
um, this decision meant that I had to get back into the academic world somehow, which is not an easy thing to do if you've been out of it for a while. And then I developed this research project to the point where the idea that you might do an archaeology of human sites in outer space is kind of quite accepted. Um, I'm not the only person working on this, but um, there's, you know, only a handful of us. And to the point as well where people in other countries like the UK um, say, do you want to come and talk about this to us? So yesterday I talked to the astronomers in the Department of Physics at Oxford University. And this was basically, uh, what have we got out there? What's out, uh, out in the solar system that humans have created that is of interest from an archaeological perspective? Or is a place or an object that people have some kind of attachment to and might want to preserve into the future in some way. So I looked at space junk in Earth orbit. I looked at the Apollo 11 landing site on the moon. I looked at Venus because people forget that throughout the Cold War, while obviously the US and the USSR were madly trying to get to the moon, the USSR was also focusing its attentions on Venus. So there's a whole bunch of Soviet landing sites on Venus. What? So I like to bring that to people's attention. Yeah, that's a great thing. I didn't know that at all. Yeah, people just forget about Venus. Do they know where Laika the space dog is? <sighs> now, I'm trying to remember... If that space... So she was in Sputnik 2, and I think that has re-entered. No, oh, so she's burned up. I think she has burned up. But now that I say that, I'm not entirely certain. I'll have to go back to the catalogues and have a look. Because so, I reckon that would be a site I'd, I'd want to visit if I were to go on space tourism. Yeah, it would be like a memorial. It would be like people would want to go there and sort of pay their respects to this poor little puppy dog who died a horrible, terrible death alone and so far away from the earth, from everyone who loved her. Yeah. Yeah. Space dog. Sort of a... T <laughs> who thought that was an idea? Like, what Apparently point? every space agency in the world <laughs> thought so, animals in space was a great idea. So, yeah, there's huge numbers of different kinds of animals have been launched up there. I think we feel strongest about the animals who are... Or animals who can be pets. Mm. Um, you know, we don't eat, or some cultures don't eat animals considered to be pets. And what's considered to be pets is not the same everywhere, but there's large sort of swathes of the sort of Western industrial world that consider dogs to be pets and not to be eaten. Mm. And anything that might cause them distress is, is cruel and should be avoided. So I think that means that means people feel more strongly about Laika and all the other dogs that went up and the chimps that went up than we do about the cockroaches and the rats and the spiders, even the cats, I think, because there were a few cats in space. So I think people feel differently about cats. People, pe There are people who are not cat people who are probably like, why can't we send all the cats into space? So I think there's... 
that there's um the politics of animals in space is something that I'd never thought about before and now cannot stop thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's the biggest challenge of doing your work? Because first of all, mm. the one that strikes me most readily is that most human stuff in space is relatively fresh, archaeologically speaking. Mm -hmm. This is true. And people sometimes find it hard to get their heads around the fact that you can do archaeology on something that's within living memory. Mm. But that, that gives you advantages and disadvantages, so it means you can just go and ask people what happened. But people... We all know our memories are incredibly fallible. So, in fact, sometimes what the most interesting thing is what people think happened rather than what happened. The thing about the archaeology is that the object is either here or it isn't here. So, mm -hmm. so what's written may not be correct. What people remember may not be correct. But either you go there and you find it or you do not. So the actual physical object tells you something that isn't necessarily present in people's accounts of it, which are always written from some particular perspective, I guess. So. Well, particularly with so much of the space race happening during an age that was prominent in propaganda. Yeah, which is one of the most interesting things about it. So, so all of this technology was created with a purpose to demonstrate that technological superiority equaled ideological superiority, which equaled the ideology that deserved to rule the world and outer space. So all of this stuff is incredibly symbolic and incredibly intertwined with emotions. And it's quite interesting because... When I talk about this kind of stuff to um, aerospace engineers, who, who are the people who then and now mostly are, are doing the making and the thinking up of, of these te technologies, you kind of get one of two things. So, so often if you ask an aerospace engineer how they feel about a particular space object or a particular mission, it might be... Well, it's often the first time anyone's kind of asked them that. And I ask them that because I'm an archaeologist and a heritage person, so that's what I'm interested in. It's people's... What people care about is, is what gives these things significance. Mm. So sometimes no one has ever asked them about this thing beyond just the technical specifications. So I often get these engineers who, who for the first time, are, are being allowed to articulate how it made them feel, what they got out of working on a particular mission, um, what it meant in their life. And that's really, I find that incredibly enjoyable, I guess. But then there are others who, if you suggest that any of this space stuff was anything other than strict functionalist technology, they get very upset, very upset. If you say, well the fact that it is also acting in a symbolic manner or also acting to, to, to demonstrate some cultural value that people are in that, as propaganda, attempting to, to, to disseminate, that it doesn't have to be one or the other. These things can be both at once. Not, so some of them get very upset at that, very, very upset, which I find curious. Yeah, I think it's such an interesting... Um 
not quite contradiction, little bundle at the heart of science, mm. the idea that science is detached from human desires and needs and emotions. Mm. Mm. While you simultaneously have this idea that science is driven by the highest human ideals. Yes, that is quite a contradiction, isn't it? <laughs> As the... As though the thing that you put the money into, as though the thing that you put the time and energy and concentration on isn't, you know, as much a matter of what you feel like doing mm. as anything else, mm. what you think is important. And, of course, you know, the great thing about science is sometimes it'll turn up the opposite of what you want it to. So there is that kind of fundamental sort of truth to the process. Yes. But, yeah, I, I remember... The one that always comes back to me is uh, that cats can smell cancer at quite oh, early yes. stages. I've seen stuff about them being used in, in hospitals and doctors' surgeries. To, yeah, yeah. yeah, but because we understand the eye better than we do the nose, all of mm. our kind of measurement stuff is eye-based. Mm, yes. And so we're looking for things when there might be whole reams of information and fascinating data in the smellosphere. <laughs> Which is such an appealing... I mean, we've created a little, little smellosphere here in this room with our scented tea. Scented tea, cupcakes. And our scented cakes. And, um, yes, you're right. We're not used to in interpreting... Or if we, if we do, we obviously do take smells and interpret them all the time, but turning them into that systematic sort of predictive kind of science like the cats are doing is probably something we should do more of. Yeah, we think, mm. of, we think of seeing as believing. We don't really think of smelling as believing. But there's really good data to show that, for example, uh, things like PTSD triggers are often smells. Mm. And memories mm. are very often triggered by smells and you'll know mm. what it smells like to come home. Mm. Those things are in many ways much more... Con or you know what a beloved man or woman smells like, that, that distinctive signature of someone's smell that yeah. can immediately just open whole areas of your brain. Yeah, so that stuff is fact... Mm. But for some reason it falls outside the realm of science or scientific inquiry, which I, 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 love, I love that stuff. That's the stuff <laughs> I'm really interested in, the things that sort of people slide around in. Uh, what have you been wrestling with recently? <sighs> well, I'm afraid I'm going to contextualise this back in the space world. Yes, no. I, I suppose this, this might not be a recent wrestle. This might be... A sort of a longer-term wrestle. So, as I mentioned before, I have done a lot of work in um, heritage management for mining industry. And why... What does that mean? Oh, well, so somebody will be proposing to mine some resource. It might be... I've done an awful lot of coal, um, uranium, um, copper bunch of other minerals and so they have they go out they go there's the exploration phase so they go out usually um drilling to actually find out where and at what depth and in what condition the ore bodies are and so frequently um a heritage person like me will go out with members of the traditional owner community and do a survey for heritage sites 
um, before the drilling goes ahead. Um, all of that exploration phase, so 94% of exploration um, drilling doesn't end up in a viable mine. So there's a huge amount of that goes on. So you end up doing a lot of surveys when you're out with um, drilling rigs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so this is actually, I love drilling rigs. Like <laughs> I really, give me a diamond bit drill and a reverse air blast drill. Like I actually find it really fascinating. Um, and then you move on to the, um, at some point, a, a, an ore body might be considered viable enough to make profit and you move on to the actual construction of the mine. So same deal. So generally the mine will require power lines, roads, water, accommodation, offices, um, all of the stuff to enable the actual machinery to, to start removing uh, the resource. So we will do another survey. We will go out and by this stage it's a bit... So in the, in the exploration drilling phase, you can negotiate a lot. So you can say, right, there's a site here. Do not bring your rig over, drive over it and put a bloody big hole in the middle of it. Go and do that over there. By the time you get to actually making, for example, an open cut mine, there's there's nothing people have a kind of an idea that if uh, an aboriginal group says oh there's a sacred site there they can shut down development well the number of times that has actually happened in reality you could count on the fingers of one hand so by the time you get to that stage there's very little you can do except maybe salvage the sites or or come up there's other sort of creative management options you might come up with but it means we're out there all the time so we're out there when they're drilling we're out there when they're blasting we're out there when they're actually building the mine itself we're often out there when the mine is in operation we might be working in the areas they're going to extend it in and then sometimes we're involved with the rehabilitation um, and decommissioning phases too. So the idea is always to help the mining company meet its obligations under heritage legislation and minimise the amount of damage that's done to Aboriginal heritage sites in the process. So as a sort of profession, I, I feel very passionately about the fact that we have destroyed so much Aboriginal heritage and that heritage is so critically important for constituting healthy communities, traditional owner communities today, that, you know, I feel really, really strongly about making sure, uh, because in that role, someone like me is sort of the mediator between the mining company and the Aboriginal community. So I'm always working to try and get the best outcome that we can. But the thing... The thing that I wrestle with, because this transfers into lunar and asteroid mining as well, I guess, is that part of me abhors the fact that to get these resources, you destroy landscapes, you you destroy people's livelihoods, their memories, their connections to a landscape. And that's the same on the moon as it is on Earth as well. And... I would happily, you know, and have occasionally, you know, be out on the protest lines, you know. But the other part of me, I love that technology. Like, I actually find the whole process quite fascinating. I love being around drilling rigs. I've always wanted to drive. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're they're like trucks that actually cart the coal or the whatever out of the bottom of the massive, massive 
huge pit. They're the size of two-storey buildings. They're what? enormous, incredibly... Um, they've got lots of blind spots, so you have to be really careful if you're around them on a mine site. Mm. So it requires... A, and they're hu- I mean, they're huge. You can't, they are so big. And I've always secretly wanted to drive one of those trucks. So I kind of have this... And, and well, when I'm talking about space stuff as well, so my research has kind of led me to a place where I'm trying to use heritage as a way to connect people with space and provide an avenue through that connection to feel that they have a right to have a say in what happens in space. And we're in this interesting period at the moment where you have these incredibly, incredibly wealthy men who are starting to really change the dialogue around these things. Mm. So I kind of see my space heritage work as providing a little bit of a counterbalance to that. So I feel I feel very strongly that that is something that, you know, like looking at the heritage of, of places in, in space isn't just, here's this quirky, funny thing we can do. It actually plays a role in making those connections and giving people a conduit to kind of understand what's going on. But the other part of me (laughs) is really curious about the technology that you require to extract water ice from the moon or rare earth elements or whatever. Part of me, I read all of those um, reports and studies with great interest, um, you know, visualising what the actual physical process is going to be and thinking of the technological challenges. So so part of me... So that's really, really interesting. Like going back to the mining negotiations with you in this mediating position where you are, to a certain extent, seen as the enemy by the mining people because you're there to stop them from doing all the mining and to a certain extent, I imagine seen as the enemy of the local people because you're oh, there you're the meat and helping the, the miners yes, yeah. while at the same it's, time you feel allied to the interests of both to greater or lesser degrees. That's a hard position to be in. It's an interesting position to be in. The dilemmas around it are, are more about feeling and less about practical outcomes because there's... While heritage might sound like a sort of a soft and fluffy thing, there's actually extremely well-developed philosophies and protocols of of how to do an independent job. So while neither the mining company nor the Aboriginal community might always recognise that that's the case, the the point of being a professional in in this industry is you always have a defensible position. You always have a line of reasoning for why you're attempting to get something are done in a certain way as opposed to another. So it ought to be consistent between if someone else came in and did the same job, they should come to the same sort of results and conclusions. So it's sort of rigorous in that sense, but but you are dealing with people, like you're dealing with so um, Aboriginal communities who are often, you know, traumatised by the whole history of um, colonialism in Australia and you're asking them, or the legislation is requiring that they take a position on what this mining company... And it, sometimes it comes down to really minute things. There will be, shall we move this power line 10 metres uh, in order to avoid this little tiny site? 
And you were like, well, what's the point of saving this little tiny site when the entire landscape is going to be completely destroyed? So what are we wasting? And some, so I have met quite a number of um, elders who, who feel like this and they just say, look, we're not equals at this table. There's not even any point in mm. getting involved, not any point. Others would say, well, if we're not, if we're not involved in it, then we get nothing anyway, so we might as well. Uh, engage with the process and I would say there's often lots of good outcomes as well so so I have met many people in mining industry who are equally passionate about trying to make sure some of this heritage survives and passionate about you know giving communities resources to kind of try and make up uh, for that but I also have met an incredibly large number of very racist people who have um, behaved in really horrible ways individually like been nasty to the people I've been working with and that's quite then then you know you think well the the law says we have to do this we have to go through this process but you're like well do we really like this is just a this is not really helping anyone I guess so there's lots of yeah lots and lots the thing with outer space stuff people say of course well there aren't any indigenous people in outer space and say, well, we what's that away. then? That's a, that absolves you of everything, does it? And um, from the point of, point of view of my research, um, I would make the argument that, you know, if we look at the moon, then Indigenous people across the world often have cosmologies and philosophies and sciences that are strongly, uh, or, you know, that the moon is quite central in, well, not, not just Indigenous people. People all over the world have looked to the moon for their mythologies. What I like to say is there is no person on Earth who is not a stakeholder in the future of the moon. That's a good thing to say. Mm-hmm. So, so, do you open talks with that? <laughs> I sometimes finish, finish uh, talks with that, so I have to get better. them to that point yeah. where... where um, yeah, which is yeah, which is kind of the reason why I think looking at space heritage is important because because and by the and the fact that it's so recent, um, I think is powerful because people you can say to people, do you remember this? And for things like the Apollo Eleven landing, that might be the one thing that people actually remember or have heard about. You, of course, would have been. Um, many, many years from existence mm-hmm. in 1969. Many, many years. <laughs> I was five years old and I remember it quite well. Um, yeah, so... Well, how do you... And I know this is probably a terrible thing to ask somebody in your line of work. How do you deal with people who are conspiracy theorists, who don't believe that the moon landing happened or who are science sceptics of various kinds. That, it's such a hard one. Well, because I'm a space archaeologist, I both get the archaeology ones, which are like, you know, the Egyptians got to Australia first and they built pyramids at Gympie and left hieroglyphs at Carryong um, into <laughs> the north of Sydney. So we get all those ones. And then I also get not just lunar conspiracy theorists, but, oh, I've invented a new... A rocket propulsion system. Everyone else is right. I get flat earthers too. So, so put the two together. My show sure this get year is awful... based around a flat earther. Oh my gosh! I have to come and see this. <laughs> um, but I'm always torn because, on the one hand, 
on the one hand, they are wrong. They are just wrong. They are completely wrong in every way it's possibly wrong. They are wrong. But by the same token, and I'm not an expert in this stuff. There are people who have studied conspiracy theories, you know, of all kinds intensely. On the other hand, they they have a kind of knowledge and the appeal of their knowledge, and which I think is something that drives conspiracy theorists, is the sense that they've done it themselves. They've found the clues. They've put two and two together. They've come to the conclusion by... So the fact that their data and what they've observed is, is all incorrect is sort of irrelevant. There's something empowering for them, I think, about saying, I looked at these pictures of... Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon, and I can see the problems. So part of me wants to say, I get you. Like, you feel excluded from this sphere of this bubble in or this window that, like, the little magical, you're looking through the window, you can see it on the other side, and you want to have a conversation with him, you've got something to say, but no one's going to let you in that door. So, so I feel a lot of sympathy with that. But it's so hard when it comes to finding the words to answer those emails. Mm. It is so hard because the other thing that happens, if you give them a chink, suddenly they can waste your time. They can, I, I don't want to say that trivially, but waste their time. You Suddenly you have created a relationship and a responsibility to that person that you are required to service. And the minute you say, look, I'm so sorry, I can't do this anymore, you send them right back to that place where they say, nobody believes me, I'm holding out against the world. So it's almost impossible to find some way to, to, or I find it really difficult to kind of be respectful, but also create a boundary where I don't get inundated by, 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 because it's an emotional need as well, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's really, that's hard. a really hard thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, an, it's that's a nice way to look at it. I always thought of conspiracy theorists as being quite hopeful people, mm. optimistic in the idea that anyone has a grand plan. <laughs> <laughs> because if you've ever worked in any large organisation, you know how much of it is just... Yes, humans that's true. Squ- squibbling and squabbling <laughs> and, you know, sort of vaguely moving in the same direction through accident and mortgages uh, but you're right there is something lovely about thinking even if for the conspiracy theorists it's nefarious and they hate it the idea that someone can actually execute the plan and have it work to that level yeah that this is isn't just of. chaotic and depressing it's <laughs> and random it's like it's a grand scheme design out there yeah it's a nice idea but also thinking of it as a sort of a postmodern artistic lens i like that way of looking at it this they're putting together a kind of an art piece Mm, mm. um, without of of sort of approaching scientific data without scientific tools yes you're right that there are lots of similarities you're right so they are creating art um, maybe maybe pitching. that's the response to these emails. Mm. That's a beautiful theory. Very pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try that next time. I see, I see what you've one. done there. <laughs> Very elegant. <laughs> so how did you come to have a flat earther at the centre of your show? Uh, well, my show this year is called Mythos, uh, and it's about sort of the mythologies of self. It's kind of 
subtly and secretly about all these people walking around the world being very sure that how they think the world is, mm-hmm. is true. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of approach that in what I hope is a um, diplomatic way by looking at my own stuff. Mm-hmm. So the things that I'm sure of about myself and then showing that those things are less certain than you would think. So I start with my name, which is Alice Fraser. I'm going to spoil a joke of the show, but it's just a pretty basic one. My name's Alice Fraser, and I know why my name is because my father's Michael Fraser, and his name is Michael Fraser because his father's name was Adolf Friedenberg. And so I tell the story of my Czechoslovakian Jewish Mm -hmm. grandfather and the fact that this thing that I know about myself, the most basic thing, like if you're going down a form, of an identity form, you start with your name. Mm. My name isn't doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. And then I, I go, well, I'm my place. Where am I from? I'm from Australia. I know I'm from Australia. I grew up in Australia. And then I meet this man online who's a flat earth theorist who doesn't mm. believe Australia exists oh. at all. Oh. And so the how how is it possible to engage with that? Can you mm. argue with that? You know, you'd think mm. an entire country is a, a certainty and then you realise that in oh. some ways it's a matter of perspective. Can I drop into that? That if we go back um, beyond... If we go back longer than about six, 7,000 years ago, we have a very different coastline. If we go even further back, Australia is Sahul. And so... Archaeologists have to train themselves out of talking about Australia when they talk at certain time periods because it, it doesn't exist. So so you have time and space conspiring to deprive you of this certain thing. Well, yeah. Mm, that's he, so interesting. In talking about my grandfather, he came from mm. Czechoslovakia, which also no longer mm. exists, mm. and having to try and go back and figure out where he came from and is it in the Czech Republic or not. Is it? Did you find the border out? has changed. Well, well, you have to come to oh, the right. show. Oh, um, But, yeah, that, that is he still from there? Because that's what that mm. was at the time that it was. And then I go through all sorts of, you know, things, other things that I know about myself slash am uncertain of about myself, where I fit into the Mm. spectrum of womanhood or gender between girliness and feminism and Mm. all of that. And, and yeah, I I think it's a fun show. (laughs) And I hope that it's it's a good show. I'm sorry you got rid of the robot, though. Well, I didn't get rid of the robot so much as the robot served his purpose in Ethos, which was the previous show, uh, which is now available online, um, if you want. Uh, but he, the robot, for me, was kind of a, a palate cleanser after mm. the trilogy, so that people didn't think that forever, every single show, I was going to rip my guts out on stage <laughs> for their pleasure. <laughs> I wanted to do just a fun, technical mm. show that still had a bit of a nice mm. feeling to it. It was... The easiest Edinburgh I've ever done was last year because it wasn't, while it was a show that I wanted to do well and I was very happy with and I was very proud of, it wasn't one that I felt a responsibility to. Oh, that's an interesting distinction. 
And, yeah, I mean, like, for me as someone from your family who um, can listen to you do your shows and know the people or the events that you're... and have to make a little... Uh, transition to remembering no this is a show this isn't actually about necessarily about you being uh, autobiographical but on the other hand it is because you are using those and I often recognize so many things from I'm using real mm. people and events if there's anyone who appears villainous in any of my shows it's likely that I have changed identifying characteristics name gender I don't think I've seen many villains in your shows, actually. Maybe I haven't seen the right ones. No, I guess anyone who is seen in an unflattering light, probably. Mm. There's is an interesting question because people say, oh, how do you do comedy about your mother or your father or, you know, all of this? Isn't it disrespectful? And I, mm. I don't think it ever is. Mm. I don't think I'm ever making fun of them in a way that is degrading. I would agree with that. I think it's... Uh, I make fun around them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. In a way... And you do. I have I have heard comedians often jokes about their partners. It's mm. just like, oh, my God, is, is she... Are they listening to this? How do they feel? So I've never heard you say that kind of thing um, where I'm just cringing, thinking, oh, my God, I really hope this was negotiated beforehand because if you just heard that had been said, you would be crushed. So it, I don't think you're that If, if you get a chance to stick around to Edinburgh, there is a really <clears throat> interesting, uh, very, very funny friends of mine, Sarah, Bo- uh, Sarah Keyworth and Catherine Bohart, I nearly mashed up their names, they're a couple, and they do comedy about each other. Oh. And I've been in an, a room with them where they one of them's been telling a joke that is a, a funny scenario from their relationship and the other one will say, oh, I already talk about that. And they have to fight it out between them who's going to get that story. Really? <laughs> or if they have different enough angles on the same story that they can both tell it in different ways. That's a very different way to have a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I... I, I don't know that I could do that. I don't know. I don't like people talking about me. <laughs> That's why I do comedy. So I talk about me. I do the talking about me. Thank you very much. Uh, no one else is allowed. <laughs> I mean, obviously they, they, they do uh, on the way home in the car if I've done my job right, but they're not telling me about it. Um, where can people find you online, Alice? Oh, well, um, I write a blog. It's called Space Age Archaeology. Uh, I think um, it probably comes up fairly quickly if you put those words in. It's not a. It's not always a serious blog. I just write about what I'm thinking about at the time. Mm. Uh, there are. I highly uh, recommend it. You're a good writer. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I have a book that has was published in Australia and New Zealand in April, and will be published in the rest of the world in October, 2019. It's called Dr. Space Jump versus the Universe Archaeology in the Future. So it's not online, but people might like to read it. And pre-order it. Pre-order it. That would be nice. Um, and I, there's a number of talks I've given for various things that are up on YouTube. So there's one on lunar mining. Uh, there's a TEDx Sydney talk from a few years ago, which is kind of an overview of space archaeology. Uh, various other bits and pieces. So... 
um, some of those videos are, are sort of a good introduction to the field. Uh, you can also read articles at The Conversation, the Australian edition of The Conversation. So I've talked about space archaeology in a number of those. So they're obviously sort of written for a general audience and are quite accessible. Yeah, look her up uh, online. Thank you so much for having tea with me. This was so much fun. I really feel, as Alice's, we have an obligation to have tea and cakes as frequently as we can manage it. I agree. I think that's our obligation to the world.